What's happening, people? Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Seth Stevens Davidowitz. He's a data scientist, economist, and an author. Basketball is one of the most popular sports on the planet. Seth has used advanced AI to statistically analyze everything about the players, their backgrounds, hand span, height, first names, and more to uncover some of the wildest trends in the game. Expect to learn what percentage of American men over seven feet tall are in the NBA, why there is a huge outlier in the most common name of all NBA players, who the best height-adjusted player of all time is, just how important genetics are in basketball, whether the draft is actually effective, and much more. Even if you're not a basketball fan, this is so fascinating. Someone that has used AI and ChatGPT and a bunch of other advanced tools to just do the money ball of basketball. It's really, really cool. Seth's been on the show a bunch of times before, and this is a bunch of stats I actually dropped on Rogan's show last week. So if you enjoyed that, you're going to enjoy this. So get ready. This episode is brought to you by Manscaped. If you are a guy who is still using an old face shaver from four Christmases ago to trim your gentleman's area, grow up. Come on, join us here in the modern world. There are purpose-built tools for the job, and Manscaped's Lawnmower 4.0 is the best ball and body hair trimmer ever created. It's got a cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents, a 90 minute battery so that you can take a longer shave, waterproof technology which allows you to groom in the shower, and an LED light which illuminates grooming areas for a closer and more precise trim, or if you just wanted to do it in the dark. They've also upgraded to a 7000 RPM motor with quiet struck technology. It's got a wireless charging system that helps the battery to last even longer. Altogether, it means that you're going to hate trimming your body hair far less, and you can get free shipping worldwide plus a 20% discount if you go to manscaped.com slash modernwisdom and use the code modernwisdom at checkout. That's manscaped.com slash modernwisdom and modernwisdom at checkout. If you're looking to make an upgrade to your nutrition, there is one place I would tell you to start and it is AG1. AG1 is a daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. Since 2010, they've improved the formula 52 times in the pursuit of making the best foundational nutrition supplement possible through high quality ingredients and rigorous standards. With just one scoop, you get the nutrients and gut health support that helps your whole body thrive and covers your nutritional bases. Also, there is a 90-day money-back guarantee, so you can buy it and try it every single day for 89 days, and if you do not like it, they will give you your money back. So, if you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. You can get a free year's supply of vitamin D3 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom. That's drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom. This episode is brought to you by Surfshark VPN. Protect your browsing online and get access to the entire world's Netflix library for less than the price of a cup of coffee per month. If you are using the internet without a VPN, you are basically dancing in a muddy field without any shoes on. It is not good for you. If you use a public Wi-Fi network like a library or a cafeteria, the internet admin can see all of the data going back and forth between your computer and the internet. Plus, your internet service provider is tracking everything that you look at and then selling your information to companies who will target you with ads on what you browse. Also, it means that you can't access the entire world's Netflix library and you can't use services like HBO Max or Amazon Prime when you're abroad. All of this is fixed by Surfshark VPN. It is available across unlimited devices, so it protects and gives you access on your laptop, your iPad, your phone, and even your smart TV. Plus, there is a 30-day money-back guarantee and an 83% discount with three months free. All of that is available if you go to surfshark.deals modern wisdom. That's surfshark.deals slash modern wisdom. 
But now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Seth Stevens Davidowitz. What percentage of seven-footers are in the NBA? To the best of our knowledge, it's about one in seven, which is enormous. Uh, Pablo Torre is the first guy who calculated this. I've done a similar calculation, and everyone seems to uh, unite around this number, around one in seven, which is just insane. Is there any other pursuit, glamorous pursuit, where one trait gives you a one in seven chance of reaching the absolute pinnacle of that? Uh, fields? I don't think so. Think about all of the the six in seven people that could have been on an NBA player's wage. Yeah, they must feel terrible. Dude, uh, you blew I mean, it. I, I guess they can, a lot of them are probably playing abroad. Uh, you know, they're, they're probably our basketball players regardless and make, and having fun and, you know, making a living playing a game, but they're not getting the NBA wage for sure. How rare is seven foot height? Being seven foot or above is one in 650,000 height. <laughs> <laughs> wow that is such a genetic lottery yeah i mean it's yeah you're basically I, yeah i don't think there's any other gene that gives you such a chance of being a famous multi-millionaire <laughs> um, yeah that's a good point what else do you learn about height uh so one of the things that's interesting about height is uh and, and basketball is each inch roughly doubles your chances of making the nba like throughout the height distribution so if you're six foot tall, you have basically twice the chances of becoming an NBA player than if you're five foot 11. If you're six one, twice the chances than if you're six feet, all the way out to if you're seven two, you have twice the chances than you're seven one, like throughout the height distribution. What that means is just there's this enormous difference in probability of reaching the NBA. We said one in seven chance if you're a seven footer, if you're under 5'10", which is the average height of an American male you have a one in 3.8 million chance of reaching the NBA. <laughs> like, it's basically impossible. I mean, there are exceptions. Uh, you know, I talk a lot in the book about uh, one of my favorite players, Muggsy Bogues, five foot three and played 14 seasons in the NBA. Uh, so it's not impossible, but it's pretty close to impossible. and Probably not worth putting much energy even trying. What are the disadvantages of being tall from a player perspective? Well, I think there are... There is, uh, if you look at the tallest humans in history, uh, many of them are over eight feet tall. And just about all of them, it's due to a thyroid disease. Uh, you literally, there's a growth hormone that just overproduces, uh, the growth or hormone is overproduced. There have been, there has been at least one NBA player who got to his height through a thyroid disease. That's George Murison. Some people might remember him. He, was, he also was an actor for a little bit. Uh, and he was... Literally, it was a disease that gave him that height. His parents were average height. And if you're uh, that uh, tall just from a disease, you're going to have all kinds of problems. A lot of the tallest people in history, very few of the tallest people in history even make it past the age of 40. Uh, but I think one of the other things that's interesting is that se uh, seven footers or just taller NBA players in general are just way worse athletes any way we can measure it. They jump much less high. They're much slower. They're worse shooters. They are this kind of surprise me. I don't think anybody's shown this before. They're worse in the clutch. They can't handle pressure to the same degree shorter NBA players can. And I think the reason for this is just because the select, the advantage of being tall is so enormous mm. that you kind of don't have to be as good at anything else. 
So, you know, if you're six feet tall and you're competing against millions of other people for for that point guard spot, you better be an insane athlete. You know, the the six foot NBA players, they run as fast as a sprinter. They jump as high as a high jumper. Uh, They shoot as well as anybody in the world can shoot. Uh, they can handle pressure incredibly. They're just so good to to beat out millions of other people for that spot. If you're seven feet tall and you're competing with dozens of other men for your spot, you don't have to be that good. You just have to be one in seven good. So, you know, the average seven footer, his vertical leap is only a little bit higher than the average person could could achieve with enormous practice. Uh, he's slower than most than an average runner on a high school track team. Uh, he shoots worse than an average high school basketball player. Uh, player. He handles pressure worse than an average high school basketball player. He's just not that great, but he is really, really tall. Well, it, it begs the question, why are tall players so prioritized? If if they're less good psychologically, cardiovascularly, physically, whatever, why why do they keep getting selected? Well, because they are, it is an advantage. Uh, they grab more rebounds, they block more shots. I mean, the the basket is up there, or maybe I'm, yeah, the <laughs> basket is up there. Uh, the basket's not on the ground. The basket's in the sky, uh, you know, 10 feet above, above the ground. And I think when that's the case, it's a huge advantage to be really tall, to be able to reach higher, uh, to be able to get higher, to block shots, to grab rebounds, to do all these things, to be able to get your shot off without being blocked, without it being blocked. I wondered whether you were going to have some sort of an insight, Moneyball style insight, where you were going to say, all of the NBA teams need to start drafting more six foot two people because, you know, the trade off that you get for athleticism from a wider pool of potential people is greater than the advantage you get from being seven one or whatever. No, I don't think that's true. I mean, it is legitimately true that seven, you know, Shaquille O'Neal dominated the NBA for many seasons, even though you know, I'm a better free throw shooter than Shaquille O'Neal. That's one of the core skills of basketball. And I, who am not particularly good and never play, can hit a higher percent of my free throws than Shaquille O'Neal can. But he legitimately, I wouldn't say, you know, to the Lakers, hey, have you thought of picking up Seth? Uh, He shoots free throws better than Shaq. Like, I legitimately think Shaq dominated basketball. But it is kind of a weird, unfair advantage. It It does feel almost like a little, I don't know, as a fan of the game, it feels like it's almost an a bug in the game that height is such an advantage like if they like the ideal sport you know you shouldn't be able to reach the top of a sport the way George Mirsan did through a growth hormone disorder uh like that should you know it feels like off in in how uh, you know an athletic uh pursuit what, what what it should take to reach the top of an athletic pursuit but yeah I'm not telling players you know don't uh you know cut Joel Embiid because he can't jump as high as, uh, you know, a, a six foot player. Like he still does help the team, but uh, he definitely, it definitely is true that they are worse athletes. Yes, laughs in thyroid disorder, like that. <laughs> All right. So, what about? Um, are you able to compare like for like different players of different heights and say what if Muggsy Bogues had been six seven? What how good would have he been? Yeah, I was able to mathematically figure this out, which was the most fun I've ever had on any study I've ever done. You know, as a shorter man, I'm about 5'9", I think, on a good day. So I think I kind of did this calculation. Uh, I ranked people, I called it Muggsies. Uh, 
which stands for Metric for Understanding Game Given Sporting Individuals Effectiveness and Size. And I've ranked every player. You know, the, the math is in an appendix for those who are really curious uh, how good they would be if they were the same height, how many Muggsies they'd have. And number one is Muggsy Bogues, who's just achievement is so ridiculously insane to be an NBA player for 14 seasons, even if he wasn't the greatest NBA player. He was a decent NBA player for 14 seasons at five foot three inches tall. It's insane. You know, other players, Earl Boykins and Spud Webb rank really high. Michael Jordan, interestingly, still ranks number nine on a height adjusted despite metric. being like six, six or something. Yeah, because he was so, so good. So he is legitimately one of the greatest at his craft we've ever seen. But if Muggsy and Michael were the same height, I think Muggsy, I think it's unambiguous in the data, the way I've cut the data, that Muggsy would be the more dominant player. Muggsy would be the one who would be making the documentaries about who he think is the quintessential at mastering his crafts, at, at, at mastering his craft, at determination, at work ethic, and all these other things that we now associate with Michael. Michael had enormous talent, enormous drive, enormous work ethic, enormous anything. And he also had enormous height, uh, which, you know, some of these other guys didn't have. <clears throat> what do, like, why is it that players come from the countries that they do? Obviously, basketball wildly overrepresented by the USA. But if one in seven people over seven feet tall, why are Scandinavian countries that I think have got the tallest average height in the world, why have we not seen loads of Danes or Norwegians or something. Yeah, so uh, a big thing is uh, popularity of basketball. Obviously, uh, obviously plays into how many basketball players a country produces, and there are really only uh, three regions of the world where basketball is extraordinarily popular: uh, United States, where it was invented; uh, the Baltic states, former Yugoslavia. So, if you're growing up playing basketball, you know the average person. I'm sure there. Are, countless people around the world who, if they started practicing when they were five, could shoot a ball like Steph Curry or could do, you know, everything with a basketball like James Harden, but they never even think to do that. They're playing soccer or they're playing some other sport. So that's really important. Uh, there are some subtle things that go into how, uh, how many uh, basketball players the country produces. Uh, one that I found, which I found very, very interesting. And after you say it, it's extremely obvious that predicts how many basketball players a country produces is volleyball popularity. Uh, because there's only one other sport that uses height the same way basketball does, and that's volleyball. So the average volleyball player has basically the same body type as the average small forward in the NBA. About six foot eight on average, uh, you know, reasonably thin, uh, of enormous leaper. And I didn't know this. I'm such a, you know, an American that I'm like, who the hell cares about volleyball? So I, I excuse my naivete, but in writing this book, I found that, uh, you know, in Iran, volleyball is five times more popular than basketball. And there are numerous countries around the world where volleyball is more popular than basketball. Uh, it's more popular than basketball in Brazil, in Bulgaria, in Russia, in Italy, in Puerto Rico. And what you see is in these countries where volleyball is more popular than basketball, you see fewer uh, NBA players than you'd otherwise expect. Uh, and particularly fewer forwards than you'd otherwise expect, because a lot of these taller people, these six foot eight, six foot nine people are playing volleyball instead. You know, in the United States, Carmelo Anthony and LeBron James, when they grew their enormous height, I don't think anybody was like, hey, have you thought of spiking a ball? 
you know, that's that's the dream. Uh, but the guys who grow to be six eight, six nine, six ten in Bulgaria, the dream is to spike a volleyball, which is a horrible financial decision. Uh, <laughs> you know, like the, I, I think I talk about this player from Bulgaria who leaps higher than anybody has ever measured in the NBA, and he makes three hundred thousand euros a year, which is a great salary. That's not that's not terrible, but that is so far below the NBA minimum salary. That's like someone's a, shoe allowance for one yeah. week in the NBA. <laughs> yeah, you, uh, I, I, you know, I, I, if any, if any uh, enormous men in Bulgaria or Brazil or Iran are listening to this podcast right now. I want to tell you, practice your free throws, not your spiking. That's where the money is in the, in the world. That that's that's the the real uh, win, I would say. Just how genetically predisposed or predetermined is basketball success? Enormously, basketball is enormously genetic, more genetic than pretty much others any other sport we can measure. The way to see this is the prevalence of identical twins. In basketball, there have been an enormous number of pairs of identical twins who have reached the NBA. 11 pairs of twins have reached the NBA. All 11 of them have been identical. And this is not true in other sports. Uh, 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 more than 10% of brother pairs of brothers in the NBA have been identical twins, way higher than other sports. That's a dead giveaway that genetics are driving basketball ability because identical twins, unlike fraternal twins or unlike other brothers, share 100% of their genes, not 50% of their genes. So if one happens to get a really good draw of genetics, the other is going to get that same draw. And uh, I did a calculation that probably more than half of, I, if, a, if a player is in the NBA and he has an identical twin, he has a more than 50% chance of also being in the NBA. Uh, like if, if you get that same draw of genetics, you're like destined to be an amazing player as well. Now, a huge reason for this, of course, is because height is so important and height is very genetic, about 80% genetic. But a lot of other skills that are important, a lot of other traits that are important in basketball, hand size, arm uh, length, wingspan, uh, vertical leap, sprinting speed, also really, really genetic. Basketball seems like the sport designed in a lab to rely on genetics, uh, like just it heavily uses the skills that are 70, 80, 90 percent genetics and doesn't really use the skills that are that are 20, 30, 40 percent genetic that some other sports do. What, uh, what really are the skills that are 20, 30, 40 percent? So reaction time, uh, handedness, whether you're lefty or righty is much less genetic, uh, hand eye coordination, much less genetic. So Something like shooting in the the Olympic sport, which is really hand-eye coordination, that's not going to be. But super how can genetic. you say that basketball isn't hand-eye coordination? Yeah, no, there is definitely important importance of hand-eye coordination, but just relative to the other sport, you know, relative to baseball, for example, which is all hand-eye coordination to hit a you know all of baseball is being able to you know hit get the swing to hit the ball, which is hand-eye coordination or. Uh, reaction time reflexes that's re that's not as genetic that baseball is just so dependent mm. on that uh whereas basketball the skills that are more important height wingspan uh you know vertical leap why uh, is why speed. is hand size so important yeah that actually i hadn't realized uh until i wrote this book uh basically the ability to palm a ball is i always got to get my hand in the screen yeah, <laughs> uh, the yeah. ability of, to palm a ball 
Uh, now I reveal I do not have Yannick <laughs> or Kawhi Leonard hands. Uh, another reason Those I could never tiny be tiny girl player. hands that you're waving around there. The Donald Trump hands. <laughs> uh, but uh, I, uh, uh, being able to palm a ball, hugely valuable to grab a rebound with one hand, uh, to be able to dribble better with the ability to palm a, hand, uh, palm a ball, really, really valuable. Uh, Phil Jackson coached famously coached both Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant. And he was asked, if you could pick one player, who would you pick? And he said, Michael Jordan, because Jordan had enormous hands and Kobe Bryant didn't. And Kobe Bryant admitted the one thing he changed about his body is he wished he had bigger hands. Uh, so it's kind of known in the basketball world that hands are valuable. And a lot of the all-time greats had enormous hands, even for their height, You know, whether it's Giannis or Wilt, or Shaq. How, how, how big do these hands get? 12 inch, 12 inch hand width. You know, the average is about eight inches. So just very, very, you know, a foot. Yeah. Like a, this is like a foot long. Uh, yeah. That's insane. That's insane. Yeah. The hands and you could look at pictures of, you know, Kawhi Leonard is another player with legendarily large hands. You know, look at pictures of his hands. They're freakish, uh, hands. And, uh, it turns out that as NBA teams have known that hand size is really important, but it doesn't seem like they quite knew just how important it was that if you look at the draft, uh, you know, at the NBA combine, they measure players' hands, how the hand with the players and players with wide hands historically have done better, you know, by, by advanced metrics than you'd predict based on their, uh, based on their draft spot and players with, you know, tiny hands, the Donald Trump hands, uh, they're just awful players. I think 17 of 19 players who had hands below eight inches, below average, uh, performed below their draft spot. And most of them just couldn't even be NBA players. So I think it's known that hand size is important. Uh, I don't think it's been appreciated just how important it is, that it is up there with the height and the wingspan, the skills, the traits that we know are really, really important, or the vertical leap. Are there any of the sports that you know of that are highly genetically influenced in the same way that volleyball and basketball are? Uh, track and field seems to be very genetically influenced, also dominated by identical twins. Uh, you know, if you look at uh, track and field, uh, the Olympic track and field athletes, uh, the percent of same-sex siblings that are identical twins is up there with basketball. Uh, and I think sprinting speed seem particularly seems also uh, very genetic. Uh, that, you know, Usain Bolt or whatever, uh, you know, I, I, I'd, I'd want to bet on his son uh, to be a, a tremendous uh, runner. So that is another uh, sport that is uh, highly, highly genetic. Uh, How important are your parents beyond the genetics thing? Yeah. So the average American male has a one in 36,000 chance of reaching the NBA. Uh, the average son of an NBA player has a one in 43 chance of reaching the NBA. So one you, in 36. Are you, are you able to, one in 36 to one in 40, one in 36,000 36, to, to one in 43. Are you able to um, control for the physical inheritance, like the uh, height and all the rest yeah, of it? A, a little bit. It, it's a little hard to do, but it clearly, so that's a 744 times higher chance of reaching the NBA than, you know, a son of an NBA player. Now, a lot of that is genetics, but it's pretty clear it's not all genetics. And, if you have a father who was a professional player, was an NBA player, you're going to get really good coaching from an early age. And one of the things I saw in the data 
is sons of NBA players on many dimensions. They look very similar to other NBA players. You know, they, uh, they have similar heights. They have similar weights. Their stats are pretty similar, uh, mostly, but they shoot free throws extraordinarily well. So, uh, the average NBA player shoots free throws 75% at a 75% clip. Sons of NBA players shoot free throws at an 80% clip. And that's a bit, five percentage points, a very big difference in free throw shooting. And, uh, 8% of the top 50 free throw shooters of all time have been sons of NBA players, whereas only 2% of NBA players more generally are sons of NBA players. Uh, the greatest free throw shooter of all time, Steph Curry, son of an NBA player, Del Curry. Uh, and you, and you see just, you know, uh, Devin Booker, uh, uh, yeah, uh, a lot, many, many NBA play, uh, Clay Thompson, uh, many NBA players, extraordinary free throw shooters. One of the things that's interesting, and, and okay, so why is that? Well, form is so important in shooting. And if you have an NBA player for a father, they're going to be helping you on a form, your form for a very, from a very young age. Uh, uh, and, and that's a huge advantage in working, in w- working your shot from a very young age. Is just a huge advantage. One thing you see among NBA players, it's very interesting. Uh, NBA players, their sons, they tend to be shorter than they were because there's regression, regression to, the to the mean. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, Clay Thompson's father was a number one pick as a center. He was six foot 10 and he was about a 60% free throw shooter, not extraordinary free throw shooter. Clay Thompson's only six foot six, but he's an 80% plus free throw shooter. So what you see is, they, the physical traits, they regress to the mean, but the fr- shooting, which requires that early training, the form, they're just much better at that. So, you know, there have been many examples of uh, NBA players who are power forward centers themselves, and they have sons who are shooting guards. Uh, so they don't get quite as much of the height, uh, you know, as they had, but they get that early training to improve the shooting. Yeah, very interesting. I feel like I missed uh my shot because i also read that chris is the most common name <laughs> for black nba players so well, if only i could have fixed the problem of not being black yeah, yeah that was your first mistake <laughs> yeah well uh, i guess i guess i was not black before i was called chris yeah so yeah maybe so uh chris is the most common name among uh, nba players now why is that that seems just like a random piece of trivia uh, it gets to a bigger question of what's the socioeconomics of NBA players. And for a long time, conventional wisdom was that so that M- the NBA was disproportionately sampling from people from rough backgrounds, tough backgrounds, the ghetto, you know, impoverished, single parents. And the idea behind that was if you're, let's say, a black boy, uh, impoverished in the ghetto and you're pretty good at basketball that is your one chance of getting out escaping your hardship escaping your circumstance you know to become an nba great and you will do whatever it takes work as hard as it it it, as as is required uh to reach the top of basketball whereas if you're you know the son of a lawyer and a doctor in the suburbs and yeah you're pretty good at basketball uh well, you have so many options that you're not going to spend day and night, you know, practicing basketball, devoting yourself to this pursuit. Uh, that has never been true. Uh, there was initially a study by Josh Dubrow and Jimmy Adams that showed that 
both among Caucasians and African Americans, uh, being from a upper middle class or above family is a huge advantage in reaching the NBA. And I've done my own study at, at NBA players much less likely than the population at large than the black population, black NBA players much less likely than black population at large to be born to a single mother, to be born to a teenage mother. On uh, any way you can look at the data, uh, being from a you know two parent home, uh, upper middle class or middle class or above, huge advantage to reaching the NBA. And the most maybe interesting uh, data point for that is the names of NBA players. Uh, there was a paper by Roland Fryer and Steve Levitt that found that among the African-American population, uh, you can tell the demographics of someone pretty well just based on their name and that uh, uh, African-Americans from higher socioeconomic backgrounds are more likely to be given common names, uh, names that are very popular in the population at large. African-Americans from lower socioeconomics, from poverty, from the ghetto, more likely to be given rare, unique names, names that nobody else is given that year. So an example of that, I'm pretty sure, is LeBron. Uh, now LeBron is probably a common name because, you know, everybody wants to name their kid after LeBron. But when LeBron was born, and he was born to a more difficult background, a single 16-year-old mother in Akron, Ohio, uh, LeBron was a unique name. It wasn't given to other people uh, that year. And, uh, it wasn't given to, it wasn't a name that other people had as well. And if you look at NBA players, they're half as likely, uh, black NBA players are half as likely as the, po the black population uh, writ large to have unique names. They're much more likely to have names Chris, Michael, Marcus. So in the book, I have a whole word cloud of the names of NBA players. And the most common name uh, by a pretty wide margin is Chris. Uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> so you think of Chris Paul or Chris Bosh, many other examples. And uh, Chris Paul is a great example of a player from. Uh, two-parent home, uh, middle class, the family joined him on an episode of Family Feud. Uh, you know, that's kind of where the NBA is getting their players uh, much more than conventional wisdom told us. So Michael Jordan, another example, uh, uh, grew up a middle class, uh, two-parent family in North, in, uh, born in Brooklyn, raised in North Carolina, very stable upbringing. Uh, that's, a, that, that, that's where the NBA is is. is, is getting their their talent by and, by, by and large. Now, of course, not always, which means we have to give that much more credit to the LeBron James of the world because they really did overcome a lot uh, to... If know, only he'd been five foot three as well. Yeah. With seven that, inch hands. Yeah. Then, he, then we'd really have to give him a lot of credit. Exactly. Yeah. Just how dominated is the NBA by black players or African-American heritage? Yeah, it's about 80% uh, of American... Uh, uh, born players are African American, uh, which I didn't get into. You know, some of that, I, I I don't go into the reasons for that, which is probably beyond the scope of of my study. And uh, you know, some of it is legitimately cultural. Uh, the black advantage. I didn't actually put this in the book, but the black advantage in basketball is smaller among Americans than it is is larger among Americans than it is among Europeans or people from the Caribbean. Or uh, so other regions of the world, there isn't such a big advantage uh, for black people. And I think part of the reason is that uh, basketball is just so popular in the black community in the United States that, uh, you know, if you surveys that ask whether you're a huge basketball fan, uh, African-Americans are about twice as likely 
as other Americans to say they're huge basketball fans. Uh, so it is, you know, any uh, again, being a big fan of the sport uh, is a huge advantage to reaching the top of the sport. That's why there are so many more players from the United States than there are from Great Britain, for example. Uh, you know, it, I, I don't think, you know, most people, uh, you'd probably be more of an expert on this topic than, than I am, but uh, I, I don't think most people growing up in London are dreaming of being a basketball player. They're dreaming of being, you know, they're not dreaming to be a Chicago Bull. They're dreaming to be an Arsenal player. Yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, uh, any, anytime, any community, whether it's a country or a race or, you know, a, a, anything else uh, that uh, where, where basketball is really popular is going to produce more than their uh, fair share of NBA talent. What determines who chokes under pressure? Yeah, so this is, uh, so one of the things very interesting is people choke in basketball, I think more than a lot of other sports. So you look at the average NBA player, you compare free throws, kind of nor how they shoot free throws normally. And free throws is a great test of choking because it's the exact same situation throughout the game. You're shooting from the same spot, no defenders. And the average NBA player shoots uh, free throws more than one percentage point lower in clutch moments, uh, five minutes or less on the clock, game within five points than in other times. So the average NBA player is a choker. This is kind of surprising because in a lot of sports, we found that players don't choke. And the reason for that is to reach the top of a sport, you have to be so mentally tough. You know, the average person, of course, is going to choke under a pressure moment but they're just going to be knocked out way before they reach the top of their sport, right? So, you know, if you can't handle a pressure penalty kick, uh, your problems are going to reveal themselves in high school uh, long before, you know, you're playing in the World Cup or, you know, or whatever. And similarly, you know, studies have shown that baseball players tend not to choke. So why do basketball players so consistently choke? And I think this gets to the point, again, I don't love hammering the seven-footers in large part because. I feel like when a 5'9 person is attacking people taller than him, he seems like he has a horrible Napoleon complex. <laughs> so, I, you know, I, I, I hesitate to use my book as just, you know, seven footers secretly all suck and tall people suck because uh, there's a dangerous pattern of, of shorter men doing things like this <laughs> out, out of their own insecurity and resentments. Uh, but I can't lie, in the data, the only thing I could find that predict choking was height, that taller players just choke more and I think the reason for that is there's just not much selective pressure on taller NBA players. If you have to only have to be, uh, if one in seven seven footers reach the NBA, you only have to be have one in seven basketball ability to reach the NBA. You don't have to be that great at everything. You don't have to be the world's most mentally tough person because there just aren't enough seven footers to choose from. And uh, so the average six footer in the NBA shoots free throws exactly the same in the non-clutch moments and clutch moments, but the average seven-footer shoots free throws more than six percentage points worse in clutch moments. So just an enormous tendency to choke among the tallest NBA players. Well, didn't you say that you wanted the NBA to have a height cutoff because you thought it would make the game more exciting? That was another one where I'm like, God, if I say this, First of all, people are going to call me a heightist or something. <laughs> but also, I, I don't know whether you can be a heightist around the people that have got it, that got like the advantage. Yeah, uh, I just, I know, I, I make clear in the book that I don't think there actually should be a height advantage. 
I think if there were a, a height cutoff, if there were a height cutoff, cutoff, I think it's unambiguous that there would be more talent in the game, that the shooting would be better, the clutch shooting would be better, the athleticism would be better, all these factors would be better if there were a height cutoff. But no, I'm not a heightist or an anti-heightist or a <laughs> reverse heightist. Right? A tallest, whatever it a is. Tallest, tallest, shortest. And, you know, I am a huge basketball fan and my favorite player growing up was Patrick Ewing, who was seven, uh, you know, seven feet tall. So I, I do, they do enrich the game. Hey, put your man. tall supporting bona fides out front <laughs> yeah. and center in case anyone's going to try and say something mean about you. Wasn't <laughs> yeah. that, so it's at the very end of the, it's the very end of the book, but it seems related to this about childhood difficulty. Oh yeah. Uh, so one of the things I was interested in was whether child difficulty uh, predicts your tendency to choke. Uh, it's, it's an interesting theory. I've heard a lot. You know, Jimmy Butler is a classic great clutch shooter. Uh, he, he's completely unaffected by pressure moments, just so good in the clutch. And Jimmy Butler had such a rough childhood. His father abandoned the family. His mother kicked him out of the house because she didn't like the look of him. Like, it was just a horrible childhood and there is a theory that jimmy butler is so good in clutch moments because he's so tough because he's been through so much and compare his background to you know someone who grew up in the suburbs you know uh you know a soccer mom and soccer you know an M uh, you know an nba dad dad or something you know they they can't handle what jimmy butler can handle so i actually tested this in the data in a fun way in, in the book in a fun way uh I, there isn't a measure, an objective measure of how difficult was your background. So one of the things we might get into about this book is I heavily relied on ChatGPT to in the creation of this book. And I thought ChatGPT would do a great job of giving me an objective measure of how difficult someone's childhood was. Because it has in its data set all this information about all the NBA players, you know, what they went through in childhood. So I asked ChatGPT to rank the background of NBA players, and it gave such sensible answers. Uh, you know, Jimmy Butler was ranked a nine. Kawhi Leonard grew up in a tough neighborhood in Compton, was ranked similarly a nine. Uh, Luol Deng ranked very high because he grew up in a civil war in Sudan. Uh, like all these different measures that would be hard to objectively, you know, rank, ChatGPT gives a very sensible ranking. And then some players, Dwight Howard, uh, a state, his dad was a state trooper. He ranks very low. Uh, the sons of NBA players rank very low. Steve Nash, a suburban family in Canada, ranks very low in, in difficulty of upbringing. So I had this great measure of difficulty of upbringing. And then I tested, does this predict one's tendency to choke? And it doesn't. It does not. God uh, damn at it. All, at all. So it was a little bit of a letdown because it would have been a cool theory if you saw it in the data. Uh, the other thing is that it made me realize how dangerous it is to use ChatGPT for research. Because if I really wanted to cheat, I could have just kept on asking ChatGPT to give me a new ranking <laughs> until I had a ranking that did predict uh, choking. So there is a, a, a definite, uh, uh, ChatGPT, as amazing as it is, uh, as a coder, objective coder of information, uh, does allow for a great deal of cherry picking if, you're, if you don't fuckery. feel like being too honest. The fuckery can occur. It does, yeah, for um, sure. <laughs> Warren Buffett and Paul Millsap, what did they have in common? <laughs> yeah, so one of my chapters is called What Do uh, Warren Buffett and Paul Millsap Have in Common? Paul Millsap's a great NBA player, multi-time multi, all, uh, multi -time all star. 
And Warren Buffett, as everyone knows, uh, one of the greatest investors of all time. Uh, what they have in common, uh, well, besides being great at their craft, uh, was they both turned down the opportunity to go to an elite college, to go to a college that was less elite, but they felt more comfortable in. So uh, Warren Buffett started his uh, collegiate career at Warden, you know, one of the great business schools in the world. And you'd think someone who dreamed of being a businessman since he was the age of five would, you know, relish the opportunity to uh, go to Warden to learn from the greatest business professors, to have the, uh, all the, the great business peers. And Buffett left uh, Warden and went to University of Nebraska because he wanted to be closer to his family. And he thought the libraries were just as good anyway. Uh, and Paul Millsap was a top-ranked recruit, got offers from Arizona, uh, Louisville, LSU, but he decides to go to Louisiana Tech because he felt comfortable there, was close to his family. And the chapter uh, basically looks at the data on whether it matters whether you go to a good college. So, so it doesn't matter. Both of you, for, you know, for, for a career, the great, co the great colleges that you know, tend to, that people go, there are some colleges in which people who go to, to them have way higher uh, earnings. So Harvard, Stanford, Warden, you know, is it a big advantage? Uh, does it cause you to do better to go to one of these schools? And then in basketball, there are certain uh, universities, there are different universities, but North Carolina, Kentucky, Duke, UCLA, where uh, players who go there are way more likely to become NBA players. So d is it really important to go to one of these colleges? And I think the evidence is, my read of the evidence on both the real world and uh, the NBA is that going to one of these elite colleges gives you an early edge. So if you go to Harvard undergrad, Stanford undergrad, Ivy League un uh, another Ivy League undergrad, you're more likely to get into an elite graduate school, more likely to get that first job at McKinsey or uh, a prestigious firm, a Google. And in basketball, if you go to Duke, if you go to North Carolina, if you go to Kentucky, you're more likely to be drafted. But if you look at the long-term outcome, how good you are as an NBA player eventually, how much you earn over your career, they don't seem to do that much. Eventually, things kind of even out. And if you... You know, so they kind of trick people early on. They give a shine to you if you have that gold-plated resume that you went to this elite school. Uh, you know, you can trick the world early in your career, but eventually everything's going to even out. And that kind of happened to both Buffett and Millsap, where uh, Warren Buffett got rejected from Harvard Business School because probably because they're looking at this guy from Nebraska and like, you know, well, we don't want someone from Nebraska. We can get someone from Warden or one of these other elite schools. But I think it's pretty clear in the long run. Uh, he wasn't hurt by his Nebraska education, you know, became one of the wealthiest men in human history. Uh, and similarly, Paul Millsap uh, fell to the second round, perhaps because teams are like, well, we don't trust a guy from Louisiana Tech. But in the long run, he became, uh, you know, a great NBA player, an all-star NBA player. Uh, so it's interesting that the real world and the NBA seem to, colleges seem to serve a similar function. They give you that early shine, but then they don't seem to do much beyond that. How important is going to college at all? Well, one of the things that's very interesting uh, in the data is historically uh, NBA players who didn't go to college, you know, who went straight out of high school, massively overperformed their draft spot. 
you know, it, it was a great bet. Now you have to go to college for a year, so you can't take advantage of this uh, inefficiency anymore. But for many years, it was an extraordinary idea to draft uh, a player straight out of high school. So Kobe Bryant, Kevin Garnett, uh, Richard Lewis, you know, numerous players, uh, Amari Stoudemire just massively outperformed their draft spot. I think one of the reasons for this, my hypothesis, you know, there are many hypotheses for these, but my hypothesis is if you skipped college and went straight to the draft, it was such a bold move. It was saying something about yourself and you do yourself so well and your capabilities that you do something about yourself that the rest of the world missed uh, that uh, is a huge advantage in being a basketball player. And I think I compare that to the great entrepreneurs. Uh, you know, if you look at the very greatest entrepreneurs, uh, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, what do many of them have in common? They dropped out of school very quickly. And I think if you looked at these great entrepreneurs on paper, if you looked at Zuckerberg and Gates, you know, you'd say, okay, they went to a good school. They maybe had high test scores. They were interested in computers, but so are lots of people. But the fact that they dropped out of school to follow their entrepreneurial spirit, I think was another clue that they had something else about themselves that was so remarkable that the another person who had a similar background but wanted to stay in school didn't have. And I think the same in, in among NBA players, that Kobe Bryant, knew something about himself. Amir Johnson, Richard Lewis, they all knew something about himself themselves uh, in making that decision to go straight to the NBA uh, that the rest of the world didn't know. And they, they're just, there was just, just extraordinary inefficiency where high, straight out of high school players massively have overperformed their draft spot. Yeah, it's so interesting, the, I guess, kind of selection effect of what's going on here. Like how much of this is just... There's a smaller pool that we're moving from, or somebody has a, a particular outlier, which is is co it's a commonality between all of these different people, right? There's a common thread that goes between them all, and yeah, just ridiculous self belief, I suppose, probably correlates with the turn of others. I mean, it, honestly, self belief might correlate with VO2 max. Like you, yeah. I would totally be open to hearing. That yeah 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 uh, you know zone two threshold and lactate management ability are strongly correlated with self belief like that, sure. I, I I totally believe it I think one of the frustrating things is of writing a book about NBA basketball when you're an NBA basketball fan as I am an enormous NBA basketball fan as I am is it's almost impossible for the book to be finished because you know I, I, there are a hundred more questions I want to look at. <laughs> Uh, based on these these findings like that, that would be fascinating to look at. You know, I don't know if there's a way to measure it, but I'd I'd love to see you know to to look at that and to really understand uh, why hand size has been undervalued and you know why high school players have overperformed and all these questions. They're just like you answer one question, and if you're a fan of the game, you have ten more questions you want to answer based on that question. Uh, so I had to remind myself uh, many times in the process of writing this book that. Uh, perfect is the enemy of the of the good <laughs> and that I had to finish the project at some point. You mentioned there about the NBA draft and coming from a anglicized colonial British imperialist background, the idea of a draft for us, we don't have it in rugby, we don't have it in cricket, we don't have it in football. And yet it's so common in American sports, you know, 
what how effective is it is it is it good is it a good idea for basketball at least i mean i think it evens the playing field for sure uh, you know there there are some sports where the best teams are just the richest teams uh you know the the you know the whatever team can uh spend the most money on the best players is going to be the best team is going to be the best team and uh that's not really true in basketball you know san antonio was a great team for many decades uh, even though they're in one of the smallest markets and I'm a huge Knicks fan. Uh, we're in the biggest market. You know, we should be able to uh, spend the most on players. We have the biggest t- uh, you know, TV deal and, uh, and we can't, we've been, te- te- we're finally good again this year, but uh, we were terrible for so long. And uh, I think the draft does, uh, you know, serve as, a, as, a, as an equalizer uh, where, you know, if you do get that number one pick and you are able to, uh, you know, draft a Tim Duncan, uh, or, or you know, uh, you are gonna potentially have a great team for 10, 15 years. Uh, so it definitely does serve the purpose of equalizing things, I, I would say. And it also is fun, uh, to try to, you know, predict, uh, who's gonna be a good player. You know, the NBA is one of the best leagues at predicting who's gonna be a great player. You know, if you look at, uh, the top 10, NBA players of all time, uh, 60% of them, I think, were number one picks. The uh, number one overall. Right. So it's, very, it's very predictive then. It's, it's, it's very predictive. It's not true in baseball. It's not true in football. The numbers are much lower in those sports. Now, of course, there are outliers. So uh, Nikola Jokic on Denver was a second round pick, and he's you know one of the best, if not the best, NBA player. Uh, so there are exceptions, but uh, you know, and, and there are these inefficiencies, as I discussed about in the book, you know, hand size isn't properly taken into account. And, uh, you know, I, another one I talk about is standing leap versus vertical leap, uh, which is very interesting. Uh, if you look at it, when NBA players are uh, t- participating in the combine where they're measured on all these traits, how tall they are, their wingspan, their hand width, uh, they, ha- they have to, that, uh, the teams want to see how high they can jump. And they give them two tests. Uh, the first one is a, a standing leap. You stand in place and just, you know, without any head start, see how high you can jump. And then the second one is a vertical leap. You get a running head start. It's not a full on, you know, the whole court running head start, but you get some head start and then see how high you can jump. And of course, with a running head start, everybody can jump higher. And one thing that's very interesting is if you see what predicts block shots or rebounds among basketball players, it's not the vertical leap, the running head start leap, it's the standing leap. Mm. Because a lot of basketball, you don't get a running head start. You're boxing out a player. Yeah, you're boxing out a player and the ball just comes and you jump or a guy's going through the lane and you just maybe get half a step and, and leap. So if you actually look at the draft, there's an inefficiency where players who have a great standing leap relative to their vertical leap are undervalued. And the players who have a great vertical leap relative to a standing leap are overvalued. And I think the reason for that is it's such a sexy, shiny trait, that running head start leap. If you can, you know, the people there, if you can run the length of the court and, you know, leap from the free throw line and dunk the ball, like that is so, such an impressive athletic feat that I think people are blinded, are just like, oh my God, this person has to be amazing at basketball. It's much sexier than someone who can leap not as high, but higher relative to what you'd expect without a running head start. So that's an inefficiency 
uh, in the draft. But yeah, th- there needs to be a, uh, a like coolness modifier for the exercises. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I, again, once you write a book like this, just your mind's, and you're a sports fan, I'm just a fan of all sports, my mind just starts racing. Yeah, does this play out in other sports? Are, you know, are cool traits, uh, tradi- you know, overvalued in, bo- in both sports? My guess well, is I probably, bet, yeah. I, I absolutely bet that um, pitch speed, like average pitch speed in baseball is something that is very, very highly prioritized. You know, if you're, regularly able to hit three figures throughout multiple innings uh it's just it, the whole crowd when they see that one zero zero dot zero zero like oh like the whole crowd makes noise right so it's like but is that is that the best i mean this even yeah basic- I, I, be- I believe it and yeah i i believe it and you know in in football our our football american football uh you know the the speed of a player relative of let's say a wide receiver relative to running good routes you know a, a player is just has an incredible 40 yard dash you know four two five four three you know it's so impressive so exciting uh i think they tend to be drafted maybe higher than they should be relative to someone who runs a four four five a four five but you know really precise on those routes like it's just not that exciting yeah <laughs> Uh, but it is more important, you know, I, yeah, you could probably go through lots of sports, uh, where the sexy traits are overvalued. There's a really cool YouTube video by total running productions about Sue Bing Chan. So he is the 14th fastest sprinter in the world, but he's the only, he might be the only non-black sprinter in the top, the top quite a lot, but he's the only Asian sprinter in the top. 200 or something and the guy's five eight i think five eight or five nine uh and when he ran at the tokyo 21 semifinals, his 100 meter time which i think came in at like 9.8 9.81 or something but he broke the world record for the 40 meter and the 60 meter in the 100 meter so this guy is like an it's the video that I'm talking about. You, you, I'll send it to you once we're done. It's so good, dude. And you see this this dude who can't get below ten seconds. He can't get below ten seconds. He's just is this the theoretical limit for Asian sprinters? And he changes his starting foot and rebuilds his running rhythm from the ground up. You know when he's been doing it for uh, two decades or something. And uh, it's just it's, it's awesome. He's like my favorite. He's one of my favorite track and field guys now. He's this short Chinese dude who's just the mo the acceleration of him is so insane. It's crazy. Well, I think I think uh one of the things you see in all sports are they, these players that just are so good at making themselves better uh throughout their career. And you know, you talk about wide receivers, Jerry Rice, the greatest wide receiver of all time, uh he didn't have the greatest natural gifts. You know, he wasn't the fastest. He's not the tallest, but he just would improve every year and just so such dedication to his craft, you know, tiny improvements, such a focus on, you know, the routes he was running. And, you know, if you think of basketball, Kawhi Leonard, I think fits that profile as well. Maybe not the most naturally gifted uh, player, but just year after year, improving, su- paying attention to every subtle little thing, you know, the how to rebound better, pl- play the angles off the 
uh, off the rim better. And I think it is fun uh, to watch these players, uh, even in many ways more fun than watching the naturally gifted, you know, the, the most naturally gifted players who maybe don't have to put in quite the effort and they're, uh, they can frustrate you. You know, Shaquille O'Neal, he was interviewed and they said, Phil Jackson, your coach, said that if you just practiced hard, you could have been MVP 10 years straight. And you'd think Shaquille O'Neal would be outraged at this statement. You know, how could someone say that? And he basically admitted that this was true. Uh, he's like, yeah, I, you know, I didn't love practicing. You know, I liked uh, my cheeseburgers in the offseason. But he was just so gifted. You combine that height with that, uh, you know, th- that foot speed and that athleticism. Uh, it just didn't matter. But, you know, a Shaq is a little frustrating. You know, if, if I were a Lakers fan, I'd be so frustrated. Like, why can't you just learn how to shoot free throws for God's sake? <laughs> like, uh, whereas, you know, some of these players, the the real craftsmen who uh, just constantly are improving and upping their game year after year working at it can be really, really fun to watch. What have you come to believe or what are the insights about the role of hard work in achieving goals? Uh, I think it depends so much on the pursuit. Uh, Everything that isn't basketball or volleyball. Yeah, I mean, if you're 5'9", and you have small hands and you're slow and you can't jump, like, there's nothing, you got no chance. Uh, you know, you can work as hard as as you want. It's not going to help. I, I would say basketball, because it's so dependent on so many traits that are so genetic, such as height, uh, I think hard work, it moves the needle a little bit. And I think, you know, there, you know, Michael, there's a difference between, you know, Michael Jordan is considered the greatest of all time and Shaq isn't probably in large part because Michael Jordan outworked Shaq. And, you know, if Shaq had outworked Michael, I think Shaq would be uh, the player that, you know, is number one on everyone's mind as the quintessential basketball player. Uh, But so I think hard work uh, can take you, uh, you know, from Shaq to MJ, but it's not going to take you from Seth to Shaq <laughs> or you know it's, it's not there, there's there's you're moving the needle a little bit uh, but not that much in basketball but there's other pursuits where uh, hard work maybe matters more uh, and and I always suggest if you're not genetically gifted you know there's some sports equestrian riding or skiing or you know there's certain sports where I think you really can improve your craft uh, you know you, you, you can move the needle a lot more through hard work than you can in a sport like basketball or sprinting or something all right, so we kind of flirted around it, and some of the people who don't know or didn't listen to our previous episodes and realize that you're an ex-data scientist from Google, and then you've written all of these phenomenal books, which I love, um, why you know so much about basketball? Like, why? who are you to write this book, and how do you happen to have this like encyclopedic x-ray vision to be able to see what's going on inside of the world of basketball uh so well first of all i'm an enormous basketball fan uh i have been since i was a little boy uh you know i I don't think i could have written uh, a book of you know a a book like this of who becomes the best figure skater in the world or uh who becomes the best opera singer uh because i definitely was relying pretty heavily on uh knowledge 
I have from uh, three decades as a uh, of passionate fandom of basketball. But this book, uh, I used a new tool uh, that I have become obsessed with. Uh, it was initially called Code Interpreter. It's now called Data Analysis. It's from ChatGPT. And it's basically a way to do data analysis that has just completely revolutionized my work stream. Uh, like it's, I, I say it's the most amazing product I've ever seen. I always need to offer the caveat. I have zero affiliation with chat, with uh, OpenAI. I feel like when I say this, I sound like I'm a spokesman for their, you know, pitchman for their product. Uh, I, 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 I'm not associated with OpenAI at all. But uh, it basically, uh, data analysis, uh, code, what was originally called Code Interpreter, it writes all your data analysis, your data science code for you and runs it. And it is just such a game changer that things that used to take me four months now literally take me four hours or sometimes less. Like it's just so wild. Uh, scraping data sets, cleaning data sets, merging data sets, running regressions, making charts. It is the most insane product I've ever seen. And so this book was just like written in like an explosion of just data analysis in like a shockingly short time of just all day running code interpreter analyses of basketball. And I was having the time of my life and just like just so quickly producing these charts, producing these analyses. Uh, you know, I think this book uh, would have been a project of many, many years uh, without code interpreter. And with code interpreter, it was a project that took basically 30 days uh, which I, I initially I was really proud of, but now people are like, "Well, do I want to read a book that only took you thirty days?" Uh, like, uh, but there's a I really there's a really famous um, lecture, I guess. This guy, it's a clip from a, a what looks like a marketing class or a sales class, perhaps or something, and he says, "How much would you pay me if you wanted me to design your new logo?" And the guy says, "I'd pay you thousand dollars." He goes, "Okay," and how much would you pay me? if I was able to design it in 30 minutes. He said, well, I'd pay you, you know, like $500. He's like, hang on a second. So yeah. you're getting the service more quickly, yeah. Yeah. but you're, you want to pay less because you think that the amount of time is indicative of the amount of effort, which is indicative of the amount of quality. Yeah, it was, it was interesting. So initially, the first version of Who Makes the NBA, I, one of the marketing hooks, I'm like, look, I wrote this book in 30 days. And I also show at the end, I, um, this is how I did it. This is how I used uh, ChatGPT to do all the analysis, not to do the writing. The writing I did all myself, but to do the analysis, or to make the art. All the art is AI generated from Midjourney or Dolly. You know, here's what I learned along the way in, in writing this book. And a few people were like, exactly like this guy said, like, well, we don't, I don't want to read a book in your 30-day vanity project. So now I've toned that down and I've said more that, you know, I've, I'm, I also show you how to use AI. I, I'm, I'm de-emphasizing the actual time uh, that I use, but I think that's just unfair to just how revolutionary ChatGPT is, that prior to the existence of Code Interpreter, if I said, uh, I wrote a book on NBA basketball in 30 days, I think people would correctly say, this is a piece of crap and a Seth vanity project and I don't want anything to do with this. But I think because of Code Interpreter, because of Midjourney, because of Dolly, because of ChatGPT, you can write a book in 30 days that is a real treatise on basketball with new insights on the game, you know, many answers to previously unanswered questions. Uh, I think people don't realize just how revolutionary 
uh, AI is for the creative process, that the rules of how long something should take, uh, you know, over the last year have completely changed. Mm. Yeah, it's very interesting. It's very interesting to think that you've got this like arbitrary link between time spent and and quality. It would be like if you said, um, here's some butter, but I churned it myself, like with my feet or something. Oh, I very much appreciate the fact that you went through all of that effort to give me this butter. You go, okay, yeah, and then that that book that you see that's in front of you, it was actually written by hand. Uh, but it's it's a handwritten book, and then the, all of the pages are kind of stitched and sewn together. But you know, like technological progress, people are very typically there's a lot of inertia to people being dragged along. And uh, yeah, interesting man, very very interesting. I suppose what we're seeing here is just like leverage at such an insane level of magnitude that your ability to manipulate ChatGPT and data analyzer and to be able to spit out what you needed and then to be able to put it together and then to be able to use ChatGPT to be able to proofread the words so that there wasn't any errors in it. Like that is, it's taking a skill set but leveraging it so much, way more than even something like Wikipedia or a word processor could do. Um, so yeah, people are just not not ready for this level of exponential. Dude, I appreciate you. I think you've smashed it with the book. I'm really impressed. You say at the beginning, you make a joke that you're going to try and write a hundred books. <laughs> that is a joke, right? You're not going to try and do a hundred books. Uh, I don't know. I might. I, I'll see. I'm trying to work on the monetization of this book. Like I'm trying to figure out uh, like, uh, yeah, exactly how to, if I get the monetization right, because I also self-publish this book. Because yep. like all the publishers are just like, we don't know uh, what to do with your weird 30-day projects. Like that's not, publishers move very, very uh, slowly. Yep. So no publisher would really touch this. So I'm kind of trying to figure out the, if I got the monetization right, I would I would just keep doing it. Because the other thing is, this was the best month of my life, bar none. It was so fun, uh, in part because I was writing about uh you know, the NBA, I'm a huge basketball fan. Of course, that's going to be fun for someone like me. But in part because one thing I found is AI just does so many of the things I freaking hate doing. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a data scientist, data analyst. Like a lot of data science, data analysis is not particularly fun. Uh, you know, uh, for me, writing code, clean, debugging code, uh, you know, looking up code, uh, you know, figuring out exactly how to add something to a chart in this way. It's just, you know, mind numbing a lot of it. And in this project, that was all gone. Like all I did was come up with ideas and I'm just like, here, data analyst, do it for me. And it was just awesome. It was so fun. So it's just like, it was the most fun month I've had in my life. So, you know, if I can get the monetization right on the book, on the, on this, then I'm just, yeah, I'm going I'll bring like, those together no, and I've got a decade of the most fun months of your life back to back to back. Yeah, no, I said I'd have a baseball book out by opening day. Then I'd have an Olympics book for the, you know, by the summer. Then I have an NFL book for, uh, for the start of that season. I just keep on going. It would just be the most fun. Yeah, the most fun months of my life. So hell yeah, Seth, I appreciate you. Uh, I look forward to seeing what you do next. I'll bring you back on. Let's have this. Uh, let's have this chat one more time. Chris, thanks so much for having me. Congrats on the success of this podcast. It's been, uh, 
you read, I remember when you first reached out to me to talk about my first book, Everybody Lies. And I, I think I looked you up and you're like a two bit podcaster. Uh, I'm like, but I'm like, yeah, he seems like a nice guy. I'll do this, this little podcast. And to see you uh, go into the stratosphere uh, has been a true joy and very well deserved because you have worked really hard for it. Thank you, man. I really appreciate that. I really, really do. Until next time, mate, I'll catch you later on. Thanks. See you, Chris.